Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 700 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia. And our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in the regions. My name is Brian Finnegan, and in this second episode exploring the realities behind ILGA Europe's annual Rainbow Map of Europe, we're focusing on those countries that constantly come in with the lowest scores. Every year since 2009, ILGA Europe's Rainbow Map has been ranking the 49 countries that make up Europe based on the legal and policy situations of LGBTI people. While during this time there's been much movement at the top of the map, with Spain, Finland, Greece and Moldova making big jumps this year, the countries at the bottom have largely been the same since the very first map, namely Russia, Armenia, Turkey, and at the very bottom, Azerbaijan. In this episode, we ask the question, if a country stays at the bottom of the rainbow map ranking, does it mean that there's nothing happening there? In countries where advocacy is not possible and where daily life for LGBTI people is often extremely challenging, what's happening in the work towards LGBT rights and equality? And is this mostly invisible activism bringing about change for LGBTI people in the countries where it seems life is getting worse rather than better? With me to discuss the LGBTI movements in countries where positive change is less visible are my colleagues, Ilga Europe's Advocacy Director, Catherine Hugendubel, our Programmes Director, Anna Stasia Smirnova, and our Senior Communications Officer, Mehmet Atkin. Mehmet, I'm going to come to you first. What are the countries at the bottom of the map and why do they stay in those positions? Thank you, Brian, for hosting this podcast episode today and letting us talk about the Rainbow Map, which is our benchmarking tool ranking 49 European countries on a scale of 0% to 100%. The five countries at the end of this year's Rainbow Map scale are Azerbaijan, Turkey, Armenia, Russia and Belarus exactly the same as the last three years actually. None of these five countries have any legal protection on equality or anti-discrimination. Again, no law or policy protecting LGBTI people from hate crimes or hate speech. In those countries, um, LGBTI families are not protected. In contrast, legal systems in Azerbaijan, Turkey and Armenia define marriages as a union only for different sex people. And in 2020, Russia amended its constitution to make this change as well. Legal gender recognition is the only category that these countries are getting points for. In Azerbaijan, trans people can apply to have their gender legally recognized, but the procedure is not regulated by law, so it's not guaranteed that every applicant would be able to access this right. And in Armenia, there's no legislation There are few examples of people accessing LGR or having their names changed. In Turkey, Russia and Belarus, there are actually specific legislations for LGR, but they have heavy requirements that are against human rights standards like surgery intervention, medical intervention, mental health diagnosis, etc. Turkey also requires trans people to have sterilization, although the country's constitutional court made a judgment against the sterilization requirement but the parliament hasn't made necessary changes in the law and doctors and judges still require trans people to go through forced sterilization. And civil society in those countries 
are uh, severely attacked and limited by their governments. LGBTI civil society space has been shrinking for years and none of these countries allow pride events to happen publicly. And in Russia, as we all know, there are laws that are limiting freedom of expression, like the infamous um, anti-propaganda law that forbids any kind of public information about LGBTI people. And these countries are consistently at the bottom of the European wide map. But what if the countries that rank the lowest in the EU, Mehmet, Poland, Romania and Bulgaria, what's been pushing these countries down? Uh, when you look at the list of the European Union member states only, we see As you say, Poland, Romania and Bulgaria, Poland has 15%, Romania is 18% and Bulgaria has 19% only. Poland came down to the lowest EU position in 2020 because of the so-called LGBT free zone declarations of local municipalities in the country. These declarations are not just symbolic statements, but have real impact on LGBTI people's lives in these towns, their fundamental rights as well as their freedom of assembly, association and expression. So Poland has lost a lot of points on civil society space. Recently, Bulgaria also lost points because in 2017, their constitutional court made a judgment outlawing legal gender recognition. So trans people cannot change their documents to match their gender since then. Bulgaria and Hungary are the only EU countries at the moment that practically ban LGR. Um, three EU countries in the bottom of the EU list have very limited legal protection. For example, they mention sexual orientation in their anti-discrimination laws only. And Romania is the only one among these three to have hate crime protection on the ground of sexual orientation. And in any of these three countries, there is no family rights protection for LGBTI families no rights for LGBTI asylum seekers and zero protection for intersex people's bodily integrity. And have there been any positive developments in these countries this year, Mehmet? Among the bottom five of the Europe-wide list, only Armenia increased an index point this year after the Ministry of Health revoking the ban on blood donations for men who have sex with men. But when we come to the EU countries that are at the bottom of the list, Poland received new points this year, not because the, the government has done any advancement, but the courts and other actors for equality made some changes. For example, the human rights commissioner of the country, who works as ombudsperson, started working on the issues related to intersex people. And again, the courts uh, stopped asking surgical interventions on trans people for legal gender recognition. So this has been proved and that it applies consistently. So these two developments meant new points for Poland. Bulgaria also gained a point in relation to protection of public events. This has been improved since 2019, so it meant new point under civil society space for Bulgaria. Okay, thanks, Margaret. Staying with the EU, uh, Catherine, Hungary and Poland have been in the headlines over the past few years for the instrumentalization of LGBTI people by political leaders. Can you talk to us a bit about Romania and Bulgaria and are they following suit? Um, I think Mehmet gave a very good overview of you know what's legally happening in those countries, but I think what we're seeing in addition is a, a rise in in hate and violence as as we see across Europe and Central Asia, but also I think especially in the case of of Bulgaria from 
political leaders. So in the, uh, I mean, Bulgaria had quite a number of election campaigns in, in the last years because of instable government formations. And we've seen yet again and again the rise of, of hate in these election campaigns, also coming from presidential candidates, which then really translated into attacks, for example, on an LGBTI center. And I think we need to, to put the two together, actually. I think in a, in a country like Bulgaria, where we've seen that for the last 20 years, there was no legal advance at all. The last was really with the EU accession, where Bulgaria was required to add um, sexual orientation, as Mehmet said, to the anti-discrimination legislation. This situation is quite serious. There have been several attempts to follow extensive case law to add LGBTI-phobic hate crimes to the hate crime legislation, but they continue to fail. And, and that would really mean an important step forward for the country. To look at, at Romania for a second, while we're seeing legislative stagnation, so we have only this year, we had not only the Court of Justice in Luxembourg that already confirmed the need to recognize same-sex partnership, we also now have the Strasbourg Court of Human Rights calling on Romania to introduce some form of recognition without anything happening. And at the same time, we do see, for example, an anti-propaganda legislation draft popping up that's passing one of the two houses, um, the Senate. It's not been adopted. You know, activists managed to mobilize um, that these things are not going through. But again, again, we see these attempts and, and they need to be looked at very carefully. With these countries, though, as opposed to the countries at the very bottom of the list, there's the opportunity of making inroads through advocacy. Has this been possible in the EU countries at the bottom of the list to, to make those inroads? In all four countries that we spoke about now, so Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania, I think it's it's fair to say that strategic litigation is playing an enormous role in the work of LGBTI activists to actually advance standards and the call on the country from European level to actually put in place legal advances. And the other example Mehmet mentioned already, I think it's really important to keep in mind that where governments are hostile and not advancing, very often other players like equality bodies, like ombudsperson, but also local councils and city administrations can become important allies to the community and can actually put in place changes that actually really help the community to advance. I think the, the judgment on banning interventions on for the recognition of legal gender recognition, but also the widening the protection of the equality bodies work to, to include intersex is really important and actually is something that we don't see in, in other countries that we think are more advanced on our rainbow index. So in that sense, it's also often in the more, you know, in the places where we don't expect it that actually new boundaries are also pushed forward. And I think that's important to recognize. And what about public opinion, Catherine? Does it chime with the political scapegoating? Is there any evidence that acceptance for LGBTI people is increasing in those countries? Evidence, you know, what's evidence? But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, we do see, you know, really high turnouts in prides, like in Warsaw, for example, but also increasingly in smaller cities across Poland, for example, which are a really clear indication that we should never put the Polish government equal 
Poland or equal Polish public opinion. The same has been shown in Hungary, where opinion polls, which actually LGBTI organizations have asked for from institutes, that show a, a large support for marriage equality. So over half of the people really support marriage equality. So this is not in line with what the political leadership is claiming. I think we really need to see that there's a stigmatization and polarization tempted from political level trying to to rally up their share of the voters in the country and actually silencing the increasing support for LGBTI people and LGBTI rights in in their own countries. So let's turn to Turkey for a moment. Turkey lost points because of its challenges to the right to assemble and pride marches have been happening in the country and this is in the wake of elections that really instrumentalised and scapegoated LGBTI people. What's been happening there? So what we've been seeing in Turkey, unfortunately, already since 2015, um, when, when Istanbul Pride was banned for the first time, is that actually that attacks on the LGBTI community, but specifically on prides, has been happening again and again with arrests, um, with people being detained and brought to court, and actually not having access to fair trials and justice. Um this year, the Pride season is happening right after the re-election of, of Erdogan, where again, instrumentalization of LGBTI people played a big role in the election campaign with real impacts on, on the organizations. Pride season is still in full swing, so we're very closely monitoring together with activists in Turkey on what's happening. But we've already seen at Istanbul Pride, for example, 60 people being arrested. So we, we do see that, unfortunately, the policy on attacking freedom of assembly but also attacking the community is continuing and we don't really see a change in that at the moment. Anastasia, in Turkey people go out and march a pride despite the oppressive atmosphere created by politicians who deliberately target LGBTI people and the threat this carries with it. Talk to me about the strength of the movement in this respect. Does it have influence and how organised and cohesive is it? Turkey is one of the most striking examples of the overlaps between anti-LGBTI ideologies and anti-democratic developments. LGBTI people and organizations have been a target of intimidation and repressions uh, since 2015 there. So eight years ago, Pride organizers were for the first time faced with the use of detention at Pride events. And the bans on LGBTI events, detentions at those events, police violence continued throughout the years since 2015. This was coupled with increased pressure on LGBTI organizations. So every year, despite this pressure, LGBTI people and their allies show up at Pride events and show up at LGBTI organizations. Last year, more than 500 people were detained during Pride season. And it was just over the span of a little over a month. Uh, several Pride events were targeted by extremist, religious uh, and nationalist groups. They were left without adequate police protection. The police brutally attacked Pride participants, and that included tear gas, rubber bullets. So this was an extremely violent crackdown. And let me pause here and just invite all of our listeners to take a moment and imagine yourselves in this context at this moment. For eight years, you've been living amidst detentions, smear campaigns, court cases against LGBTI activists, violence that goes with impunity. 
You have just gone through presidential elections that were imbued with anti-LGBTI hate speech and incitement of hatred. Extremism and terrorism are the terms that you often hear in connection to the LGBTI movement and protest participants. And you vividly remember last year's Pride events where hundreds were detained and faced police violence. So are you going to show up this year? Not an imaginary you, the most brave and courageous you that lives in a vacuum, but the real current you with the life circumstances, the responsibilities, the challenges that you individually have today. Would you show up at a Pride event in Turkey this year? What would inspire and empower you to show up, ready to face violence, knowing that detentions are possible, knowing that there will be barely any protection from the police? Uh, facing potential prosecution, but also facing potential repercussions in your professional life, in your personal life. LGBTI organizations and people, communities in Turkey, including allies, they have showed up yet again this year. They have been rallying all across the country. They held more than a dozen events throughout Turkey. Brian, you asked about the strength of the movement. Yes. It's really hard to imagine a stronger and clearer show of strength, of solidarity, resilience than LGBTI people and allies in Turkey who are taking space in the streets, uh, in the broader political context, and who use their voices despite years of intimidation. The movement is Turkey is clearly a movement that brings people together and empowers them to stand up for change and to do it consistently, day after day and year after year. For this to be possible, massive invisible work has to happen on a daily basis. It has to be happening nonstop. And it has to be happening centered around many different organizations in many different parts of the country, but also abroad. Different groups of people coming together, different parts of the community showing up for each other. This work, unlike Prides themselves, will not make headlines. And it is not likely to be a subject of a conversation outside of the circles of organizers and their allies. But this is exactly the work that makes it possible for people to continue showing up and grow their strength in numbers. And there is one final thought I want to share here, talking about, you know, the faces of change and the challenges that movements face. Of course, the Turkish movement is an outstanding example. Yet visibility and protests and manifestations are not the only sign of a strong movement. In other countries, in the bottom part of the rainbow Europe ranking, freedom of assembly has been severely restricted for years. And people power manifests very differently. It is people just showing up in their daily lives. It is people showing up for LGBTI equality and as themselves in their professional circles or in their professional capacity. It is people doing what they can in their immediate environments uh, to improve the situation of LGBTI people, to offer expertise and help to the movement, to also contribute with their money. It is groups that are building connections across the society with businesses, other civil society organizations, professional circles, in education, culture, healthcare, and media, creating an alternative layer in the society that offers a different space, a space that counterweights state-sponsored anti-LGBTI ideologies. So I'd like us to hold this thought while discussing change in challenging contexts, that the strength of the movement really manifests itself very differently and very often not on the surface. It is not necessarily through prides and big protest actions for LGBTI equality that we can see. So there's a lot of invisible work happening that you've talked about. What are the core elements of that work? I actually think that the question implies that there is a distinction between working for change for LGBTI people and our families and closed ones in a context where more is possible 
and in a context where less is possible. And yes, of course, there is this distinction, there is a scale. At the same time, uh, I feel that the essence of the work is still the same. Whether you're working towards change in a context without any extreme pressures, or you are doing it in a context of state-sponsored anti-LGBTI ideologies and pressure on the civil society. The reason for that is that legal and social change ultimately and always is about people. And then any LGBTI organization and any part of the LGBTI movement in whatever geography, through their work and through the ways in which they're organizing, is trying to answer, I think, a very similar set of questions. And some of these questions are, is there a critical mass of people that are ready to come forward to demand change? You know, how can we make sure that there is a critical mass of people who are ready to come forward and demand change? How can we make sure that there is a shared vision of what this change looks like and how to get there? Are there people who are ready to support these demands and to take action in their daily lives? Are there people who can defend those who come forward and take personal risks? Are there people who make decisions and have influence on what is happening and they're willing to talk and listen? Is there political will to implement change? And are there people who can hold the space for the movement and our allies to collectively update and realign our vision and to plan actions together? So this is actually the work of any LGBTI organization and any movement. Different parts of the movement answer these questions very differently. But this is at the heart of LGBTI equality work and social change, social and political change. So the work of any organization, and even more so of an organization that is working in a really challenging context, is being there for the communities. It is creating spaces and avenues for people to get support, to come together, but also to take leadership and to take action. It includes building trust in a context of really high risks, scapegoating and intimidation, Building trust within communities, building trust with potential allies, building trust with, you know, the rare policymakers, for example, or other influencing figures or parts of the society that can support us in making that change. It is also about being brave and really determined in kind of testing the limits in reaching out to potential allies, because you, you always have to be prepared for backlash, for sometimes even violence. And then, of course, it's about finding creative ways to create and shape political will to implement change in an environment where it's really unpopular and bound to extremely high risks. So what is different in the context with state-driven anti-LGBTI ideologies, like the countries that we are discussing, the countries at the bottom of the rainbow map, is that all of this work is happening while you're swimming against the current. It is about access to resources. For example, you don't have state resources to support you. Normally, the state is working against you and not anyhow in support of you. There are very high personal and organizational risks for activists, for community members, for allies. And of course, it impacts the relationships and it impacts what is possible. You have to react to many more crisis situations and emergency situations within the community and around you, but also crisis legal developments very often that further limit your work. And then you're also in a position where you have to fill the gaps. So you really have to fill in for the state that doesn't fulfill its role. You have to address the needs of the community. You have to bridge the gaps that exist in the legal protections in the country. So there are a lot of different demands and needs that stretch your capacity. Uh, You have to be at the same time in the now, documenting violations of rights, bringing uh, strategic litigation cases up, providing legal defense, providing other support to the community. So really, you know, 
filling in <laughs> for what is not possible on the national level, while also having to hold the horizon and being able to offer a vision of the future and laying the groundwork uh, for, for example, advocacy to happen when there are openings, for a strong movement and community to be there and a strong network of support of our allies to be there, to come together when there is a real opportunity to make legal change. So, of course, it is a lot of pressure on you know, one single organization or any movement in, one, uh, in any given country. And this type of work, like I said, is not something that is going to make headlines. And it's not something that can be neatly packaged uh, in a project or one or two campaigns. It is organizations showing up and being there, responding to those demands that stretch their capacity, covering all possible grounds year after year, and them needing somebody who will be next to them through all of that. And we at Ilgo Europe are trying to learn from the movement and to really offer a shoulder to those who have to make change for their communities in an extremely challenging context. Change is a, is a word you've used many times as you were speaking there. And I'm reflecting on the fact that there's very little change in, in terms of the placing of, of these countries on the rainbow map. And we don't see the work. It's invisible work, but we also don't really see the change. So I'd like to talk about change and whether there is change in these countries. And if there is change, what does it look like? Absolutely. Uh, but one thing to say is that uh, our rainbow map is dedicated to capturing legal frameworks, legal and policy frameworks. And positive legal frameworks do not immediately bring along positive lived experiences. That we know very well. And I think anybody who will look at our rainbow map and uh, annual review in conjunction will be able to see that. So yes, even though it's very difficult uh, to find any progress when it comes to legal and policy change in you know, those countries that are in the bottom of the ranking, there is a lot happening beneath the surface. Uh, just to give you a few examples, and I won't name specific countries because this type of change is just exemplary of what is possible uh, in terms of working with the wider society, working with allies and trying to change lived experiences of LGBTI people through person-to-person -person connections or connections across different communities in the country, even if there is no supportive legal and policy framework. In some countries, we've seen that a lot is possible in trans-specific healthcare and access to health for trans people, thanks to the work by trans organizations and their allies. So even in the absence of supportive legal and policy frameworks, there are possibilities to work, for example, in healthcare with medical professionals, including uh, through education with new generations of medical professionals to ensure that trans people have access to appropriate healthcare. Then there are possibilities to work with universities and other educational institutions in general, for example, with new generations of journalists and reporters. And we see uh, organizations in some of the countries in the bottom of the rainbow map focusing on this type of work, informal education, building connections with various professional groups in order to provide an alternative practice and an alternative type of knowledge. Organizations that are working with the wider society through incorporating LGBTI lived realities, LGBTI voices, um, LGBTI lives into local cultural and social lives and debates. It might be through local cultural centers, events at museums, creating connections with local civil society or cultural institutions that might be more open to collaborations with civil society and LGBTI groups. So there is a lot happening there. 
Then, of course, legal work. I don't mean strategic litigation, but really uh, on the local level, defending the rights of specific LGBTI individuals in cases of violations of their rights. Despite the absence of appropriate anti-discrimination legislation in some countries, there are examples from the same countries where LGBTI organizations and their lawyers have been successful in fighting employers that discriminate against LGBTI. There are court decisions in countries with state-sponsored anti-LGBTI ideologies and anti-LGBTI legislation that actually introduce fines for individuals who harass and engage in hate speech against LGBTI activists. Again, this is not something that will make headlines, but it is happening and it is there. It goes against the known narrative of repression and intimidation of LGBTI people in specific countries. Uh, But these are small examples that show that there is no uniform context and that the lived realities of LGBTI people are not only shaped by state-sponsored discourse, but there is also a lot of influence that organized communities and LGBTI organizations can bring to change uh, those experiences, but also to defend LGBTI people in cases where their rights are violated, despite the absence of legislation. I would also like to go back to the example of Turkey here. Those that are organizing and advocating for our rights, the rights of LGBTI people in repressive environments, are operating in a general context of hostility, not only towards LGBTI organizations and movements, but usually this is the context that the wider society also experiences. And Turkey, I think, is a striking example of a place where LGBTI organizations and movement have another really big mission and challenge. Due to the movement being so well organized and so successful in consistently showing that it is a big movement, that it manages to bring people together and that it is a movement where people are willing to show up and speak up despite intimidation and violence. This movement offers to LGBTI people, but also to the civil society in the country and the wider society, an alternative life scenario. It shows how else it is possible to live a life in a stifling context like that. The movement demonstrates that there are ways to practice and experience solidarity. There is a lot of people power, even in circumstances like that, that there is a lot of impact that people can create when they come together, that there is strength in numbers, and that there is just a different way of living and addressing this difficult reality. So this is the alternative scenario that the LGBTI movement offers to LGBTI individuals in the country, but also to the wider society. It is a scenario that is an antidote to complacency and to being silenced. It is a scenario where it's possible to demand rights, and it is a scenario where it is possible to show determination despite the adversity and repression. And it also demonstrates that there are many who are in this together. It might not be a mission that the LGBTI movement or any organization articulates for itself, but actually, in reality, it plays out like that. We automatically see countries at the top of the list as more successful in terms of the LGBTI movement. But in every country on the rainbow map, there are inequalities and there is marginalization. Mepet, I'm going to come back to you and ask maybe about what the movement in countries in the top 10, such as Malta, Belgium and Denmark, can learn from the work of activists in countries at the bottom of the ranking. Um, with the rainbow map, for example, over the last 15 years, we've seen not only how countries can advance, on human rights, but also how they can attack the achievements on human rights, freedoms and liberties, and they can take these away, actually. And anti-democratic politicians and political parties and forces instrumentalize LGBTI people's rights for their political gains. So some of those countries used to have certain levels of freedoms and liberties, but these were gradually taken away. And similar anti-democratic forces are growing in the countries that are on the top of our ranking. 
So this is a wake-up call coming from the countries in the bottom of our list to the maybe top because LGBTI rights are one of their biggest targets. Despite everything, the countries at the bottom of our ranking have strong movements, as uh, Anastasia and Katrin talked today. Um, those movements have seen a lot of political games, and these games are at the stake in, in the other countries, either starting or rising at the moment. The LGBTI movements in Russia... Or Turkey, but even in the e- European Union, Hungary or Poland, the LGBTI movements in these countries have creative ways of advocacy, community building, or exercising their freedom of assembly and expression. So I think countries in the top of our list can always learn from the work of activists in the countries at the bottom of the ranking. In terms of the experience that is already built for continuing the work under legal regression and societal oppression, Anastasia, I'm going to come back to you with the same question about what the movement in countries that are perceived to be more progressive can learn from countries where LGBT rights seem to be, are perceived to be more regressive. I'll continue the thread of movement building and community organizing here. People are at the heart of legal and political and social change. And LGBT organizations in countries with a really hostile anti-LGBTI environment have to develop creative, more consistent, more intentional strategies to ensure that there is trust within the communities, with allies, uh, with potential political supporters. It takes a lot of courage and determination to be able to do this work consistently, day after day, and to create an environment where the movement is growing and people feel empowered and feel ready and compelled to come together despite really high personal risks. So I think strategies around movement building, building relationships with communities, creating spaces and practices that support trust building across the movement that is facing a lot of risks, but also within the communities that are also facing a lot of personal risks, is something that the movements working in challenging contexts could share with LGBTI organizations and parts of the movement that are working in more favorable conditions. Because even for them, uh, even if there is a bit more space to improve legal protections for LGBTI people, organizing people, building a movement, it's still at the core of the mission of LGBTI organizations and the movement. And there is a lot to learn from those who are doing this in extremely challenging circumstances with high personal risks and state-sponsored attempts to erode trust within the communities and within the civil society. Thank you. And thank you all for being part of this discussion. It's really interesting to talk about the movement and and learn more about the strength of the movement in the context that we don't always see. You have been listening to The Frontline with me, Brian Finnegan. Thank you to all our guests today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts. The more we hear from you, the more activists will gain from our work at LVR to build a strong and resilient movement for positive change. Tune in next time when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now.